Christopher had a bright future ahead of him. He was a well-respected member of the community. He taught Sunday school, counselled troubled teens, and was a doctoral candidate in medicine before starting his own firm as a commodities broker. Problem was, nearly all of it was obtained through theft, deception, lies, fakery, and forgery. This is the murder of the Brendel family, and this is Murder Me on Monday. This is probably going to be a two-parter because I didn't realise until I started doing the full research just how much there was to this case. There's not a lot out there, and I'll tell the reasons why later, but it's a massive case. And the reason why I chose it is I actually remember reading about it and I watched documentaries years ago and knew it had something to do with financial trading. And well, Cameron and I, we've been watching all the fuss on Reddit and YouTube on Roaring Kitty and the GameStop shares and the shortening and God knows what. Cameron, if you'd like to expand on that, because I'm talking out my arse here. I really wasn't expecting to talk this early into the podcast. Usually I sit here for about three to four minutes and don't say anything and just become acclimatised to being spoken to. I'm trying to keep you awake. Yeah, so you, you refer to him as Roaring Kitty each time for some reason, but on Reddit, which is where he's from, from the Wall Street Bets subreddit, he's known as DFV, or Deep Fucking Value, and you can go back and look at a lot of stuff that he spoke about years ago where he he, he was known, he was kind of a meme on the on the subreddit for spending like $100,000 on GME stock, and, ev- oh. and everyone said, well, that's just going to tank, or an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And then everyone now is just saying that's aged like milk because it's just, it's blown up and he, he was getting like $40 million spikes from the, the GME stocks. Yeah, well, I went, after watching and reading all of this, I actually went and bought a couple of books about stocks and shares and stuff like to try and understand it. And I haven't had time to read them yet doing the podcast, so they're still sat there. But I knew that there was also, I got mixed up in my head a little bit because there was another case in 1999 Um, a chap called Mark Barton, and he killed nine people. He was a day trader, and it's no way in any way connected to this, but there was... It was something about stocks and shares. I assume his stocks tanked and he lost money, so he killed everyone or killed people. Basically, well, yeah, they were going to remove his trading platform from him because he owed them money, and once that's happened, you can't trade. Um, Well, there's probably ways... Although, I don't know, because I'm not sure if it's... Um, Again, I know jack shit about yeah, the stock market. Well, no, so. You can trade around it because there are certain things where if you get banned off a platform but you technically work under someone else, you don't, you, you're not the one that's doing the presenting. That I believe is currently because of the way that you can do it on apps. But in 1999, you actually yeah, had to be, different. you had to go into an office. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's the fact that everybody can lose something in a split second on the stock market, and I guess that intrigued me. Um, it's a bit like the Wall Street crash. But most of that is actually a myth. All the people that were jumping out of windows and that, that you still see in black and white photographs, it did happen, but not in the way it was portrayed. Wasn't it called Black Monday? No, it was Black Thursday. Black Monday was in the 80s, I believe. But Black Thursday, and it was the end of 1929, and only four of the 100 suicide and suicides attempt reported in New York, the New York Times were plunges linked to the crash, and only two actually took place on Wall Street. So the reason we're bringing this up is because it's it's loosely linked because it's to do with shares and currency yeah. and trading and things like that. It isn't because it's, oh, let's get on that GME trader hype where everyone thinks they're a day trader all of a sudden. But with the um, 
So there were some memes that were going around and being chucked about when DFV was questioned by Congress. He went, mm. there was a big congressional hearing that yes. lasted eight hours. Yeah. And people saying he should run for some form of political office because in that entire eight hour period, he basically didn't answer any questions. I think it was to highlight the ludicrousy of it. Mm. Well, because they asked, they asked him questions. They're like, are you, you, are you aware that you basically manipulated the market? And he, he was like, thank you, Congresswoman. Now, when I was a boy in Bulgaria, and, this, and then and then she was like, I want my time back. I'm declaring my time back. And he was like, okay, yes. So when I was a boy in Bulgaria, and he just he was just completely... Deflecting. Hu- Deflecting. Yeah, and it's because, yeah, it was just really funny. Um, on January 28th is when these stocks were spiking. They were spiking either day by day or hour per hour. And they were going from, within the space of a week, they went from $5 a share to almost $500 a share. Yeah. And that's where the short trading comes in and when a company the Melvin's Melvin Corporation or was it Citadel I don't know I lost track but when again novice know nothing about it Melvin had the the short position on the stock which means they basically loan out stock or shares at a certain price and they get a small fee for loaning out the shares and they by taking the short position if the stock changes price and it goes down they end up getting more shares for their money because they get sent back Mm. and then the issue is when it goes up like this they owe the same amount of shares back. So if a share did cost $50 when they were loaning them out, and then they suddenly go up to $250, they still have to give back 10 shares, for example. So it goes up to magnitude of 10, or in this case, 100. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, they had billions in this. Yeah, and it, it was it was like watching a slow-motion car crash, watching this stuff, if you even remotely understood any of the, sc- the, the the pictures and scales that you saw online. It was absolutely astonishing. But that's how... That rem- reminded me of this particular case. But that's probably enough about stock talk because it's just it's just been covered so much because it's this revolutionary thing that's happened. Within the space of two years, we've had the a pandemic, which is going to be in the history books, and then we've had the largest distribution of wealth ever that's going to be in the history history books. And they've coincided at the exact same time on top of capital riots, all, sorts, all yeah. this other stuff has just happened within the span of two years. And it's everything's on fire. Yeah. But regardless of that... Back to the case. Get on yeah. to the case. Yeah. <laughs> September the 20th, 1991... Diamond hands. Sorry. ...is when the murders <laughs> actually took place. But we will start the story two days later on the evening of the 22nd of September, 1991. Christine was at her home in Guildford, Connecticut. Her and her husband had been entertaining guests when a stranger showed up to her door. He was so agitated and insistent on speaking with her, she, he said she politely ushered her guests out and sat down to listen to the man in her kitchen. Good girl, there's weapons on hand in the kitchen. She doesn't know this, this oh, guy from Jack Shit. I don't understand that. She didn't know him and he no. said, I really want to talk to you and he just... Yep. You ask the guests to move rooms and then speak to him in the kitchen. Yeah, that... and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Okay. He unfolded a tale so fantastical, I imagine she found it actually hard not to laugh initially, but it was enough that she, she needed to listen to him. He began by telling her that her brother and his wife and daughter had been kidnapped from their home, which was an hour and a half away, in a place called Barrington, Rhode Island. The balding bearded 42 year old man wearing glasses spent the next five hours trying to convince her and her husband that he was telling the truth providing more and more worrying evidence to back his stories up he had proof 
that her brother and his wife had been taken. He showed Christine her brother's wallet with his ID, business cards, well, you pick them up anywhere, and her sister-in-law's rings, and she recognised them. He explained that his own wife and two children had been taken also, and he was desperate for her help because it was all his fault. Okay, so in so he's telling her the story that his family was kidnapped, mm-hmm. as well as this woman's... Brother, sister-in-law, and niece. Okay, I'm just trying to get that in my head, because the, the way that was spun, I'm like, wait, so he's gone to her house and told her, oh, yeah, by the way, your family's been kidnapped, and so has mine. Yep. We must work together as the Justice League yep. to save them yes. from the, for, the forces of evil. Okay. Yep. yep, that's exactly what was going on. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just checking that's where we are. Yep, no. Okay. So the kidnapping, he told her, was the result of some bad investments he had made with mafia money. I was going to say, was it the mafia? <laughs> <laughs> the mob, the man said, wanted their money back and had kidnapped six people to make sure that they would get it. Now, the ransom demand was a lot. It was $300,000 to be exact. And in today's money, that's about 576000 Now, that's a lot back then... And nowadays, people are killed for looking at someone funny. Yeah. But even so, it does still doesn't sound like an awful lot when you hear about other kidnappers where they want ten million dollars or something. Well, you you kind of have to think if if you're a kidnapper and you're stupid, you claim the ransom for something that's so extortionate they can't pay it back. And the worst thing you can do is kill the kid the person you've kidnapped because then you've lost any leverage to demand mm-hmm. the money. Same way, if you owe the mob money and the low level criminals in the mob want to make a name for themselves. For some reason, they get in the head that if they kill the person that owes the money, they're doing the the mob boss good. Yeah. And, but then the mob boss has them killed because now they've got no way of reclaiming money. Exactly. It's quite, yeah. I'm not sure if it's a trope or a theme that runs quite commonly through mob culture or mob I've seen, te- I've television. Seen, I've seen, that, that I've thing seen them read it more than once for definite, yeah. But this man, he this $300,000, he told Christine that he could get some of it. He could raise $225,000 if Christine could come up with the other $75,000, which is, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Now, so, so, okay, everyone's been kidnapped. Yeah. But if, if you give me 75 grand, I can turn it to 200. This just sounds no, like... No, I've, I've got the 225. I just need 75. Is this, is this a convoluted Nigerian print scam thing? N- where might, I, well. I have $100 million, we just need the eight grand transfer fee. This is what it sounds like so far. Yeah, yeah that's, not bad. that's not a bad analogy, actually. So... He obviously realised that Christine was really sceptical and he took her outside to show the vehicle that he'd driven up to her house in. This is probably one of the reasons why she let him in. It was her brother's car. She knew her brother's car. That would be pretty damning evidence. If if someone rocked up with my sister's car and said, yeah, she's being kidnapped, look at this, I would think, well, you've kidnapped him. As I say, you are going to sit down and listen to her. But I think you've kidnapped him. Why have you got their their car? But this is what I say, she was in the kitchen, and clever girl, knives in the kitchen. If the guy turns a bit weird, you you deal with him. As I said, her husband, Christine's husband, was with her throughout all of this. And this guy is actually a medical doctor, which is kind of relevant. He takes them out to the car, and he shows them the back seat... And the back seat is soaked with blood all over the fabric. We're not talking white, clean, vinyl or leather. And then he shows them the boot. And the boot's got blood in it. The boot of the car, or the trunk, as it's called in America. No, it's still a boot. No, they call it trunk. Yeah, but it's it's a boot. Yeah, anyway. He, the, the husband, the doctor, knew immediately that the amount of blood that he was seeing was far more than a normal person could afford to lose and still, you know... 
still be alive. So he's like, there's something here. There's definitely something here. But they still didn't trust this guy. He was he was given off all kinds of their bullshit radar was going off. Um, is it their bullshit radar or their logical radar? I I think I think it's a combination of the two. It's, it's someone rocking up like that. I think. Yeah, it's it's quite difficult to to get to the. There's only a few interviews with them, so it's actually quite difficult to actually get to grips with what it was that they were thinking at the time. Okay, but, uh, we'll ask the listener a question. What would you do if that happened? If someone came to me and said, your cat's in my garden, I, w- I wouldn't believe them. Never mind if they said... Hang on, I'll, I'll get to... I know where you're coming from this and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that when I get to the end of this bit. She said, Christine apparently said that to him that if his, if his family was in such danger, she asked him, why aren't you going to the police? And he told her, it's too dangerous because, of course, we've got this imaginary mob boss in the background kind of thing. So, for some peculiar reason, she, and we're talking in the 90s here, so we're not talking mobile phones because they didn't exist, so you couldn't whip your phone out and take a surreptitious picture of somebody. Her and her husband actually photographed the man, and they accepted his American Express card, which he offered willingly as proof of his good intentions. What the hell? I don't get that, but yeah. So... She, she, he knew she, he wasn't getting anywhere with him. She didn't know how many people, even back then, had 75 grand lying about. Mm. Some people have safes, but, you know. So this man, this stranger, hopped into her brother's car, Ernest's car that he turned up with, that's full of all this blood, and he drives off. And he rings Christine and her husband later, and he tells her, don't worry, he would somehow come up with this money. But the moment he had driven out of her sight, Christine rang the FBI. Now, I had a question at this point. There was no mention in any of this. I have a question. Can you just ring the FBI? Well, yeah. I didn't know that because I don't know how far you can take it. Well, the point is, if my understanding of this, and I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, the FBI is Federal Bureau of Investigation. And because this was across state lines, the, the FBI can be called in. You wouldn't ring. Some people would. They would ring the police force in... The town... Whatever state they're in. Yeah, 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 wherever, whatever was going on. But she rang the FBI. Now, there was no mention anywhere of Christine calling her brother to check in on him and his family. Probably couldn't because the man was there till 1am and he didn't want, she didn't want to spook him. And he was telling her he couldn't call the police because there was too much going on. As I said, mobile's not a thing. So somebody not answering a house phone wouldn't be unusual. Um, maybe they had an answer machine. But I'm suspecting the amount of blood that her and her husband saw in that car convinced them that something was going on. And she couldn't pop round the corner to check on him when the guy had gone because it was an hour and a half's drive away. So she rang the FBI. She knew something was on for off. But... Yeah, because he has the car. Yeah. So we have a family apparently missing, but no one has reported them missing. And now we have what seems to be a shakedown for money. Yeah, that's that's where we're at currently. Funnily enough, the FBI, sorry, not the FBI, the police were actually looking for the man after being told that he had breached a restraining order. Throw the FBI into the mix and it wouldn't be long before the authorities had Christopher Hightower in custody. So who was Christopher Jemiah Hightower? This was the balding, bearded, bespectacled 42-year-old man that Christine had spent five hours talking to in her house. 
He was born in August 1949, which I think makes him about 72 now. He moved to Rhode Island via Ohio from Titusville in Florida, where he grew up. He was the eldest of five children. There's nothing on his childhood. Apparently, he joined the Navy, got married, had two children and got divorced eight years after getting married. A year after his divorce, he married someone called Susan, who was 12 years his junior. The couple moved to Dayton, Ohio, where both attended Wright State University. Susan pursued a master's degree in education and Hightower completed a master's in physiology and enrolled in a doctoral program in biomedical sciences. So we're both sat here thinking, the guy's got some brains, yeah? The couple, Christopher Hightower and Susan, abruptly left Dayton, Ohio, after two fires within a week in their home. Now, this could have been insurance. Or was it to delay Christopher's exams? And it was probably the both. Hightower had failed his doctoral preliminary exams, which had then been postponed three times because of the fires. He knew he was never going to pass these exams. So the fires for insurance was a good thing, and we let get the insurance money, and off we go. But at the same time as all this, Hightower was dabbling in the commodities market. Hightower and his wife had to move in with her parents in Barrington, Rhode Island, he hadn't passed his doctoral. Um, he didn't have a master's. He doubt whether the because you have to get a license for the medical part, whichever state you're in. And I doubt his license would have pulled over. That's assuming he could have even paid for it. Whether Susan qualified her um, education masters, I don't know. But it's it's suspicious when you look further down in the story. She probably didn't. So they're living with his in-laws. Okay. And he's trying to become a commodity, this commodities trader, which is my understanding is the difference. If you trade for other people, that's when you're a commodities trader. Yeah, a firm or a person yeah. trading on behalf of someone else. Yeah. Now, Christopher Hightower met Ernest Brendel in 1989. The two men were introduced by a mutual friend that Ernest was visited in an office and Hightower had a, an office in the same thing. He set up this Hightower Investment Inc., um, he wasn't quite trading out of his basement, but we weren't far off it. Um, Ernest was a patent attorney. He was very well liked locally with, and he's with his wife. They were wealthy, but they weren't ostentatious. And they just wanted to raise their daughter in a safe, quiet environment, which Barrington, by all accounts, was. He was just an ordinary guy. Now, Ernest perceived Hightower to be a struggling financial advisor who was just a bit down on his luck and desperately in need of clients. And... They got on great because Christopher Hightower is very, very personable and they became friends. Ernest was interested in investments and he actually became convinced by Howard Hightower that he had a winning formula, don't they all, for making a killing and Ernest agreed to invest $2,000 with him. So they started, they became friends. They were sharing dinners at each other's homes. Well, I'm assuming the in-laws weren't around, but you go on. And they were going to weekend getaways. The in-laws had a, a holiday home in New Hampshire. Um, the, on, both couples would go there, I'm assuming with the daughter as well, Emily and Emily the daughter. And Ernest was so taken by his new friend that he even put Hightower's name down as a contact person 
at Emily's uh, elementary school where his daughter went to. So other than her parents, Hightower was the only person authorised to pick the child up from school. But the following year, Brendel didn't renew that authorisation. Like most schools, it's not continuous. You have to renew these things because things change. Because by that time... Stuff, Stuff can change. Yeah. So... By that time, the friendship had actually already soured between Ernest and Christopher Hightower. So, within weeks, Hightower had lost his new friend's initial $2,000 in the highly volatile commodities market. Although Ernest was hesitant to invest further... Um, Is it Warren Buffett, that really rich investment bloke? Yeah. He's like, yeah, just put it all in in the S&P 500... He's like, whatever you're going to get in that, he's going to get back. Just do that. It's easier. Uh, he says that when he dies and his money goes to his wife, that it's such that 80% of his money goes into back into that. So then the money you get back from that is what you'll live off instead of like the raw money. Yeah. He's basically saying, just put it in there. Anything else you're going to get off of the stuff is going to be too... Just put it in there. It's, it's safer. And I'm like, okay, I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have money to put in it, but I believe him. I don't know why. Well, Hightower maybe should have listened to it because Buffett's been around since the dawn of creation. He's as old as Methuselah. But is is he that guy that still lives in his original family home and refused to spend money? I don't know. There's I, a, I, there's a billionaire that's at the Bill Gates, Elon, and Jeff Bezos tier money, and he still lives in his family home in in the middle of a cul-de-sac. He just ref- I I don't I don't it might not be him, but he just refuses to move out. So I don't need to spend the money, but he's worth billions. He's his net worth looks like a phone number, and he's like, I don't care. Yeah. I'm not going to spend it. Well, I'd say Hightower should have listened to him because he, he wasn't going anywhere. Um, he managed to convince Ernest to give him another $15,000. Um, he, by, um, this is where the lying and the faker in the forgery come in, and we are talking 1991. So it was relatively easy to forge stuff that you couldn't actually check up on. He showed him some paperwork to show that another guy had brought in $65,000 profit on a $75,000 investment. So you're almost talking 100% return, which anybody with half a brain would think, no, that's not even possible. But he faked it by showing him a statement that supposedly showed this. And it was, yeah. So Ernest gave him some more money. There was no profit at all. He'd given him 75 grand, the other guy, and he'd lost that as well. But that's, yeah. Who gave him 75 grand? Uh, just another supposed investor. He, he was good at talking money out of people, but it, once he got it, it just it just went straight through his fingers like that. That's funny, but if he's so good at convincing people to give them money, why didn't he just start a pyramid scheme? Where if you got 75 grand from the other person, he could have given Ernest 20 grand. So look, I made you five grand. You give me that plus another 10, boom. He's got 30 grand. He goes back to the other guy and set the 75 grand. He gives him 15 of that. All of a sudden, he's got like 100 grand and then, and then he can run off the... I, I don't disagree with you. Pyramid schemes work for those at the top of the pyramid, as we all know. They're, they're called multi-level marketing no, in all uh, these they're, days. No, they're, they're very no, similar. A difference. There is a difference, but they are very, very similar in how that they how they work. Yeah, in, in the sense that you have someone to buy you that you buy the product from them mm. and then you sell the product. You, so with, with it, you basically, with an MLM, you don't sell the product. You sell it to other people that then sell the product, and they essentially do the same thing, and that's how it it only works its way up. It, it never yeah. works. You never. Um... The money never flows down. It only fl- it only goes upwards. My suspicion is again with this high tower and with the um, other chat that we talked about earlier. Um, it becomes they they become um, obsessive. It's it's like a, it's a form of gambling. The stock market is a form of gambling. It, and, it is literally gambling. Yeah. 
and we have both just stopped dead because we heard a yodel outside the studio door and it's one of the cats trying to break in. But never mind, we shall ignore that one. Hello, Pusk. No, I don't think. Karen. Um, They've become fixated. Okay, she did it again and you can actually hear it on the recording. Okay, for the third time, carry on. People become fixated and they keep thinking if I pump another, you know, few quid into it, I'll get all this money back and I can pay everybody back. And we all know it. Yeah, it, it becomes never... a desperation spiral of decay. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is what overall eventually we'll get to the end of it because I had so many questions when I was doing this one, you know, about his thought processes. On April 1st, which was unfortunate, um, 1991, Ernest realised that Christopher Hightower was financially inept. He was in no way... If this guy is so efficient at withdrawing money from people, why doesn't he just start a job that includes that? Something such as a a salesman or a spokesperson or one of those motivational speakers. That was exactly... You've hit the nail on the head. But when I got to the end of this, that was my thought. Why did he not turn his obvious talents at... You know, there's a, there's a joke about talking the knickers off someone um, from my day. Well, that's not getting put in. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, if someone's that good at the flim flam, why not turn it to their advantage? But it, it was like he got stuck. Yeah. And it was it's bizarre. He got stuck with the prospect of being a financial trader rather than use his talent of yeah. being able to yoink money. He, he, he wasn't, there was no way he was given that. I mean, he, he couldn't become a doctor. And I'll get into why this doctorate stuff didn't work further on down the line as well. It's, it seems like an odd route for him to have taken from going, he got a degree in physiology, so mm-hmm. what, a, a master's of some... No, he got a degree in that, and then he was going for a master's. In, was that in, wasn't biomed, was it? Yeah. It was. Um, yeah. And then... He goes off to stop trade stuff. But you don't. I don't know how long we've been dabbling in this. Yeah, it's true. Um, he was born in the 40s, wasn't he? So, yeah. Yeah. So, next day, uh, April the 2nd, Ernest asked for an accounting of his $15,000 investment. He knew that he'd lost the 2000 He was okay with that initially, but it was this 15000 additional. He wanted to know. Of that 15000 Hightower only had $3,139. He'd lost almost 80% of the money in just a couple of months. That's not a lot, really, but it is. Yeah, it's, it's not a large sum of money when you look at what's being traded, but at an individual level, that's an awful lot of money. Mm. Now, there are some massive rules about being a commodities trader, about how much you are allowed to uh, play with on behalf of your clients. And apparently the rule was that he had to not allow it to slip under 50 percent fail safe point so he given fifteen thousand dollars he was only allowed to lose seven and a half thousand dollars without it being flagged up and he obviously didn't because he spent 80 percent of it yeah well lost 80 percent so Ernest fired off a letter to Hightower you know he closed his account with him um severed their friendship and asked that Hightower make restitution by the first of May he owed him this 15 grand. There was two, no two ways about it because he had breached the regulations. Yeah. It's, all stocks can go up, all stocks can go down and you run a risk of that and people know that. But the point was he shouldn't have gone above. There's a mathematically smart way of gambling. I know that might sound strange, but say you have £100 and you, you bet on heads or tails or roulette or blackjack, something like that. You should only ever bet 20% and... 
20% of 20%, 20%. So 20% of 100 would be, you can you can spend $20. And then when it goes down to 80, you'd only spend 20% of that. And that way, when you recoup the investment and then you eventually start going above your initial amount of $100, that's pure profit. And then you, you can always free gamble with that amount. So you have this larger injection yeah. of money yeah. that you can then turn into a profit and then you can use that smaller amount of money to then make pure profit off the top of it. I use, I know this is really random, but on Twitch, there's something called channel points that you get for watching and you can bet, you can bet on it, predictions. It's completely worth nothing. They're just arbitrary points you get for watching a channel and you can bet if the streamer does something or doesn't do something and then you can win points based off of it and sometimes you go all in. So it's reward... For guessing it right. Yeah, and but there's yeah. no monetary value there's to it. It's completely zero. So people are getting the buzz from gambling, yeah. but it's not costing it. Well, I've got necessarily and, done a problem with that, but I get a buzz when I gain 40,000 channel points. So, woo, let's spend this on nothing, but I have 40,000 extra points now for nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that you know that you've got that, you've got you've got those points from someone else because someone else has to bet into it as well, yeah. into a pool. And if you're right, you win the ratio and then you get more points back. But is it's gambling whichever way you look at it but it's whether it's it's damaging or not i mean when i was a child we used to play dominoes and we used to play drafts which american listeners that's what you guys call checkers i believe and our um points or money that we used were matchsticks yeah and you and there were burnt matchsticks. It's not what you, it wasn't a case of we were going around being fire starters. There were all, but, toothpicks and stuff. Yeah, and we were. Oh, I've got a huge, great bag of matchsticks. I'm rich. Yeah, and that's probably not a healthy way. But I don't, I don't know. But anyway, so I think I, I think Hightower should have started with fucking matchsticks at this rate. Yeah, would have been better at it. Yeah, well, Hightower failed to respond. Ernest kept ringing him, and Ernest then thought right. He contacted Hightower's other clients. Obviously, they live in a small town. I'm guessing he knew who these people were. And he found out that they were all in the same boat. They'd all lost everything. And he'd broken the rules. He'd broken the regulations. So Ernest was furious. He's a patent attorney. This this guy's intelligent. Yeah. He wrote a second letter to Hightower. uh, And he threatened... He wanted this reimbursement for half his investment. The bit that he shouldn't have gambled he was yeah. willing to lose the first half because he was allowed to lose the first half it was the second half he wasn't so he bet 80 percent of it initially and he's only allowed to do 50 percent. so he wanted to do 30 yes. 30 bank yes yeah. yeah he also threatened to report him to the commodities future trading commission yeah which had the power to pull hightower's brokerage license which as we mentioned earlier that's one of the things if you don't have that you can't trade and I don't think he could even trade for himself if he didn't have that. But anyway, Hightower obviously ignored him. He had no bloody money. He, he had nothing. When Hightower hadn't responded by July the 15th, remember he'd originally said by May the 1st, he gave him till July the 15th. Ernest actually did complain to this uh, Commodity Future Trading Commission or CFTC. And they sent a copy of the complaint to Hightower. I don't quite know why, but they did. Setting a September the 17th, 1991 as a deadline for him to make restitution. And they had to pay, he had to pay Ernest $11,850 or respond to the charges with some kind of a defence. Well, he didn't have one, did he? But failure to respond, he would lose his trading licence. They told him that. Now, Christopher Hightower had that wife, Susan, as we talked about. She knew nothing about her husband's failed business dealings with Ernest. All she knew that her husband was a complete and utter loser. All his life, 
Christopher Hightower had seen all his dreams come crashing down around him. His first marriage failed miserably, so had his flat plans for becoming a doctor. Now, after seven years as an unsuccessful commodities trader, his marriage to his second wife was in shambles. But there were things in his past that even those close to Hightower didn't know. He had falsified his CV, or resume, claiming to have graduated magna cum laude from the University of Rhode Island with a near-perfect grade point average, or GPA. In fact, he was at best a mediocre student. He was usually getting C's, B's, D's and E's. And then suddenly he was getting all A's. And the suspicion that that everybody had was he was cheating or faking, but they couldn't prove it and they didn't know how he was doing it. My guess is they thought, well, he's leaving soon. He's not going to be our problem, Mm. which is... It's something that still happens nowadays. He faked his job history. He claimed to have increased sales. This is, we talked about being a salesman. This is probably why he didn't go into being a salesman. He said that he increased sales by 35% at a pharmaceutical company. In truth, he was actually terrible. He was appalling. He had an appalling sales record. He also submitted a forged transcript and letters of recommendation in order to get into the master's programme in medicine at that right university we talked about in Ohio. And though he dropped out before he received his master's degree, on his resume he actually listed that he had a PhD. And this was back in the days where it's quite difficult for people to check it. They did have to write to the university, but sometimes the universities didn't respond. Now most of these things are online. There are specialist companies you can plug someone's name in and the dates. This was only 30 odd years ago and yeah. it's so far back. Yeah, it's like yesterday to me, and I'm thinking, if I yeah. knew now, what if I knew then what I know now about stuff, but I'm, I'm, I don't have... You put problem. all your money in Bitcoin, is what you do. Well, yeah, probably. I, I don't have a criminal mastermind bone in my body, so it was never going to happen, but while Hightower was living in Ohio, shortly after his marriage to Susan's, this is his second wife, he ran a, a small investment club. It was a thing back in the the day back in the 80s it, how many times has this guy tried to make this I know, work i know he th- this is back in the 80s he lost almost all of a hundred and two thousand dollar investment that was entrusted to him over a period of four months this seems pathological the way that he just keeps trying to get money of people to make this dream come true of him being a, a successful financial it's, trader it's not like he's blowing it on holidays fast women you know, that would have been a better spend of money. Uh, yeah, uh, drugs and alcohol and all this. No, he's just trying constantly to, to make it good. And he can't. He's he, bloody awful. He, he gave, again, he gave these people forged statements which showed the investments were highly profitable. And, of course, he got caught out again and they threatened to take legal action. Well, we're talking $102,000. And then we're going to put um, a complaint into the CFTC again. Whenever Some, you say that, I keep thinking it's Chelsea Town Football Club. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I struggled with it. That's why I wrote it out in full length. Hightower, again, somehow or another, managed to talk his way out of this sticky situation. And I don't get how they... He offered to put his house up as collateral. Now, how? There must have been equity in the house. You can't put... You know, you, you own a house, 200000 You It's worth 200000 You own 190000 That isn't going to wash it. And didn't Susan have a say in it? I... I don't know. But suffice to say, he managed to wriggle out again from underneath this one. But he carries on. So at this time in question, where we've got this car full of blood and we've got three missing people, Christopher Hightower 
is at least $100,000 in debt. Must be more than that. No, it's saying at least. Yeah, no, this but... Is the, yeah but this is only what they, they initially know about. And it, that is on paper that he owes a hell of a lot more than that. He, but this is yeah. where they can pin him down to. His office telephone had been disconnected. Now, when you're a broker, you can't do without a telephone. Back in the, in, in the 80s and 90s, you had to have a telephone. Computer lines were not... You had to have a telephone to trade. He was $1,800 behind on the rent. His computer equipment, again, back then, it was phenomenally expensive. It's very specialised programmes and all the rest of it. He rented it. That was about to be repossessed. And Ernest had filed this complaint with the commodities bonds. And turns out, Susan, as I said, well, she was sick of him too. He'd also sucked $100,000 out of her parents. So we're talking $200,000 there, okay? And he'd lost that as well. Of course he did. Yeah? I don't know. I don't see why anyone is enabling this. Imagine if I asked to take your dog out for a walk and I lost it. And then I did it to someone else and someone else. People would stop giving me dogs. I'm just going to lose them. But people will tell you it's about manipulation. People are good. And this guy was good at manipulating. He He was good. He was a master con man, really. He also conned $7,000, which is a drop in the ocean on these sums, from Susan's sister. Now, Susan didn't know anything about this until much, much later. He had told Susan, his wife's sister, so his sister-in-law, that the mafia, again, he started this mafia thing a long time ago, were going to harm Susan, her sister, and she had to keep quiet, but he really, really, really needed $7,000 to pay them back for having stuffed up something because he'd lost the money. And Susan's sister trusted her brother-in-law. Why wouldn't she? So she handed over the money to Hightower, but he told her that she couldn't tell her own sister because the mob were going to come after him and he was terrified for her. So, of course, she kept that quiet, but it just went into the black hole that were the Hightower's pockets, basically. Now, it seems that the only work Susan could find was a a church secretary and she was only working part time as well. And she was even paying child support to his first wife from her own money because the Hightower couldn't hold down a job and he couldn't make money. And by August 1991, she'd had enough and she asked for a divorce from him. That didn't go down well. You can imagine with a guy, this, this, this guy must have an ego the size of a small planet. He said to her, and this is direct quote, do you know how much a human life is worth? It's worth $5,000. That's what I've paid to have someone kill you if you take my children away. And I paid an extra $1,000 so it would look like an accident. I'll get into why he mentions children there later on because that's very confusing, but anyway. Also, he's wrong. Human lives are worth much more than that on the black market. Well, no, you can you can pay someone $20 to bump somebody off. Yeah, that's you? not what I'm saying. The human body is worth a lot oh, more. Oh, yeah, the human body, yeah. A human body life parts. is worth a lot more. You yeah. get a lot of money for eyeballs. Susan was terrified. She knew from the look on his face that he was serious about the threats. So two days later, on September the 19th, she filed for a restraining order and had him removed from her parents' house. Because it was her parents' house, she could have him removed under this restraining order. You can't normally get somebody removed from their own house. But it wasn't his house, Mm. yeah? On that same day, Christopher Hightower went and bought six arrows and a Devastator crossbow, which is a high-powered weapon capable of bringing down a deer. A bow has a certain amount of flexibility to it, but a crossbow... Have you ever seen how you load a crossbow? Yes. 
They have like that foot hook at the front. You put you put it on the ground. You put your foot through it, and then you pull up the, yep. the drawstring, and it locks in. That's just a bad gun at that point. Well, you know what I'd do. You'd let go, and you'd somehow you'd somehow loony tune yourself and cross I'd, I'd, cross by yourself like the road like at Roadrunner. Yep, I'd yep. do something like that. Yep. So I googled it. Dev- Devastator crossbow, basically just a crossbow that has a scope on the top of it. That's all I can see from the pictures. It's a, it's a type of crossbow, but it seems to have a scope on it. Oh, fair enough. Well, I googled it. All right, fair enough. So Hightower's credit cards were maxed out surprise so he wrote a check for $314.98 even though the check bounced because there was no money in his checking account this was in the day when you could write checks out and even if you couldn't didn't have a a card that would guarantee the payment a lot of places would still take the check and then when it bounced they come after you because they're they're very strict in the states you it's it's actually a a huge offense to issue a check when you had no money in your account to cover it but by this point he doesn't actually give a shit so he armed himself with this crossbow and the bolts the six bolts and he hid in the shadows of ernest brendel's garage inside the garage garage you're looking at me he was in there all night I'm, i'm just i'm just getting this mental image of this man sat in the corner for some reason naked with a crossbow being a little freak he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't quite naked but he wasn't yeah he was wearing a black ninja mask oh god all right yeah. but i was closer than i thought yeah and he it's he, he like, found masturbating and crying yeah ernest didn't go into the garage that night he didn't move his car till the next morning this toyota he can't even kill someone properly no he's he's hiding in a garage no. and he didn't even go yeah. in yeah he pulled back the drawstring, as you do, and he fired at Ernest as he stepped out of his car in his garage. The arrow pierced Ernest's chest and exited out his back, landing in the garage wall. But Ernest didn't die. Hightower reloaded, because that's what you do, this crossbow, and he fired again at Ernest, and he hit him in the buttocks. And as Ernest fell to the ground, his jaw smashed against the floor, breaking his jaw and loosening a load of teeth. So there's blood everywhere by this point. He's, he's had one bolt through his chest. Oh, it's especially violent though, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, you know I don't like the gruesome stuff, but it's actually pretty relevant. So we've had two goes, yeah? He, Ernest managed to get up. This guy's tough. Hightower fired again. He hit him directly straight on into the chest. The arrow went into his, uh, his aorta and lodged in his spinal column. Ernest still wasn't dead. He some- the, the human body is really strange. Sometimes you can fall off a curb and you just die. And other times you can be shot four times with a crossbow and well, just shrug it off. It, I'm presuming at this point he's in shock. He No, I know, but it's, yeah. it's the, the contrast between the two. It's like cutting the head off a chicken and the chicken still runs around after its head's been removed almost, isn't it? It's like your nervous system shut down. Yeah, but it's to do with where the chicken's brain is. And that's why if you chop off too high on the head, they have a little bit of brain stem left, which can control movement. And you can technically keep a chicken alive if you put food down its throat, but that's a different conversation. Oh, that, I know that chicken case yeah. you're talking about. We might get into that. When, when, when maybe we'll get onto And it's the reason why a cockroach can survive with its head chopped off is because its central nervous system isn't in its head. Well, it's, its brain isn't in its head. It's an entire central nervous system that runs down the, the main body of the cockroach. Well, Ernest wasn't a cockroach loving, but... And technically, you could have... I think they did this as, as a experiment where they basically put two cockroaches on top of each other and just sort of plugged them into each other and they could survive because they could... One of them... The reason why they die is because they can't take on water. I know this isn't what we're talking about and people don't listen listen to the podcast to hear... Co- <clears throat> people don't listen to the podcast listen to cockroach fact. Um, I'm, I'm just sat here boggling because, yeah, you're a mine of weird information. 
Ernest, as I said, he, he wasn't dead. Um, he somehow managed to climb into the couple's other car, which was an Audi, not that that's relevant. It was parked in the garage next to this Toyota, and he, he managed to get into it. Hightower was behind him. He still had the, cro uh, the crossbow, but this time he went in with a crowbar. Whether it was in the garage or he brought it with him, I don't know. He smashed Ernest's skull and then broke off the arrow that was sticking out of Ernest's chest, the one that had gone in mm. through his aorta, and Ernest finally died. Do we know what... We probably don't. Do we know what type of bolt was being fired? Steel tipped. So you've got different types of arrowheads. If you have something like a broadhead, that's going to sort of destroy the... The thing as it's I'll show you through. some. I'll show you some pictures but at the end that have... may give you the idea of what it was. But it, it, from, from what I understood, it was a steel tit. But the, if he's broken it off, it's got to have been wooden or fiber or something, hasn't well, it? No, uh, it I'm more thinking about the tip of the, the arrow that he fired yeah. because he could be firing because he doesn't know what he's doing. He could be firing essentially training bolts, which don't have a tip on them. Basically, it's just no. These these things were they're, they're described as steel tipped bolts. So Hightower, Ernest is dead. Hightower was then known to have returned to his former home with where his ex-wife ex lived with her parents. He was covered in mud, and we know this because the police turned up at the door and he was given a um, order to, the, this restraining order to get out of the house. So the police said afterwards, yep, he was covered in mud. They think he was covered in mud because he'd spent part of the night when he wasn't hiding in the garage digging a couple of shallow graves. But he never admitted this. So they turn up with this restraining order. Hightower was absolutely, how dare she? He grabbed his briefcase, as you do. He grabbed a few articles of clothing in a brown paper bag. And he left. He just left. Now, because of this restraining order, he can't use... He didn't even have his own car. He was using his in-law's car. So he couldn't use their cars. So he went back and took Ernest's car. Shortly before 2pm on the day of the murder, Hightower had gone to the Brendel's home and he had placed a phone call. So he had killed Ernest in the morning. So this is in the afternoon, around two o'clock. So he'd gone back to that house and he placed a phone call to the elementary school where Emily, the little daughter, was a third, grade third year grade student. He identified himself as Ernest Brendel. He told the school officials that Emily should be allowed to walk home from school that day. But the school principal called the Brendels home to confirm that. They, they, they didn't take it on, you know, on, on promise. And there was no answer. So instead, the school principal sent Emily to the YMCA, which um, a local place next to the school, which did an after-school programme. So basically, once school finished, Emily, off you go there. And nobody thought anything of it. When Hightower went to the school, because Emily obviously hadn't walked home, so he went to the school. The principal refused, said, no, you're not. You're not having her. You can't have her. And although he was on the forms to take Emily out of mm. school, he wasn't on the current ones. So he was told, she's not here anyway. She's at the YMCA. So Hightower went to the YMCA in this blood-spattered Toyota and he told the programme director he was there to pick up the child. Again, because no prior arrangements had been made, the programme director refused to release her. So everybody's doing their job really well here. Yeah, I was going to say that. Usually you'd hear where they just fob them off and give them the child mm -hmm. or whatever. They wouldn't actually be paying attention, but it seems to be they're actually doing their job. Yeah. Unfortunately, about half an hour after that, somebody identifying himself as Ernest Brendel phoned the YMCA to say that Hightower would be picking up the youngster. And he said, I'll give Mr Hightower my driving licence as proof that he has authority to pick her up. So 
Hightower goes back to the YMCA in the Toyota and this time Emily was allowed to go with him. Now, up till that point, Emily had been safe and she'd been secure. I can kind of understand why they let him go because, but on the other hand, if they didn't know, just because I could ring up and say, hello, I'm the Queen of England, just because I say it doesn't make it so. Yeah, no, but he has the added factor of bringing the driving license. The driving license to say I've clearly had contact. I know the person. Why yeah. would they give me the license if they didn't know me? Yeah. Which means they've given me and permission we, to we take also, the child. We also know he's a consummate liar and he's, he's actually really, really good at it. So he's obviously conned them. So he takes Emily. About 6pm that same night, so we've had the morning when Ernest has been killed, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, this is when Brent, he's Hightower starts the who are to try and get hold of Emily. At 6 o'clock on that night, Alice, Ernest's wife, she walked from the bus stop to her home. Now, she used to commute and, and her husband and Emily would normally pick her up in a car. It's very common, in my understanding, you'd get a bus to X point and then somebody pick you up in the car because it's just easier getting a bus in and out of big, big cities than taking a car. And they weren't there that day. So she walked home and Hightower was waiting for her. What happened when she arrived home is pure speculation as his subsequent stories actually made very little sense. We know Alice didn't die that night. Hightower needed her to make another phone call. Now, Ernest had friends. He was a nice guy. Um, and the following day, he was planning to attend a football game. And Hightower needed this friend not to turn up at the house. So around 7am on that Saturday morning, Saturday the 21st of September, Alice called Ernest's friend and told her, told him that her husband's mother had become seriously ill. He wouldn't be able to attend the game as planned and really sorry to put you out. The friend later reported that there was not a shred of terror in her voice. The day afterwards, Hightower was seen out and again shopping. This time he bought a scrubbing brush and a hose, along with a bottle of muriatic acid. And I had to look that one up. Apparently it's another name for hydrochloric acid. Bloody strong stuff. I've worked with that quite extensively. It's not, I mean, yeah, it's quite strong. So typically you'd, you'd wear, there's certain types of plastic that don't... Yeah, it melt burn through. No, there's no, there's, no, there's certain plastics that they don't affect at all. That's why they're oh. typically carried in. Because I've worked with um, citric acid, which basically isn't, isn't acidic at all. It just tastes like oranges. Mm. Nitric acid, hydrochloric acid, I've worked with them and they're not as bad as you might think. But if, if, you, if you get one splashed on you and you immediately douse it with water, it doesn't leave that much of a mark. But I've seen it with people that when they've got it splashed on their arm and they didn't realise. Because you're meant to wear these long black gloves that go up almost to your armpit. And then mm -hmm. when you pour in this acid, mm -hmm. they don't realise it flicks up and it hits the skin. And it's not immediately, no like you don't immediately notice it. But then maybe 10 minutes later when you see it, you have this bright pink patch and it almost looks like a scar's formed already. Even when it's not, that's just a reaction that it has on the skin. But it looks like a scar's formed, almost like a burn. And it's quite strange. Mm. I mean, that's just a random like, thing I know about acid, at least. Yeah. And he also bought a £50 bag of lime. Now, we've been with lime before. I'm presuming he bought the right kind Wasn't of lime. Wasn't making tequila. No. Um, they were going to be used to wash away the evidence of what he'd done to Ernest in his garage and the like. So, inside Ernest's garage... Hightower scrubbed the wall with the acid, cleaned the blood. He doused the inside of the Toyota with baking powder and washed Ernest's blood from the car windows. I mean, it was everywhere. 
he needed that car, even, he didn't even know he'd been, he'd been up and down to the school with the blood on it and nobody had noticed it on the windows. And it wasn't till the next day he cleaned the blood off the windows. That, that just blows I'm, my I'm mind. just thinking of a van with the word candy written on it badly. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, for some reason he needed that car. He couldn't use this Audi, the other car that was in the garage. I don't know if there was no keys or because Ernest's body was in it and he didn't want to move that immediately. I don't know, but he, he wanted that Toyota. Now, the police had already received a complaint from Susan that he'd violated his restraining order by turn, turning up at the church where she worked as the secretary. Uh, but also, this time, the feds had been alerted about the attempted extortion of Christine and her, and her husband. So while Hightower was driving the Brendel's car through the centre of Barrington, Rhode Island, the police pulled him over. Inside the trunk, they found the crossbow, a kitchen knife and an empty 50-pound bag of lime. They also found blood. Lots of it. At the police station, Hightower was charged with extortion and held for questioning in the Brendel's disappearance. Police had enough to make them suspicious that foul play had occurred, obviously, but without any bodies, it was going to be difficult to charge Hightower with murder. Their suspect wasn't about to admit the killings. Instead, he told the FBI investigators an interesting, if somewhat implausible, tale. He had received threats from an associate of the powerful New England crime boss, Raymond Patriarca, he explained to detectives. They had tapped his telephone and threatened to kill his family because he was unable to pay back mafia money he'd invested and lost. And it was a story that was parallel to what he told Christine and a tale that would actually become part of his defence in his future trial. Ironically, Hightower's September 23rd arrest came the day after a letter was mailed to the, I'm going to spell it out, Commodity Future Trading Commission, not Chelsea Football Club, withdrawing Ernest's complaint. Authorities would later find Hightower's fingerprints on keys on the Brendel's computer. And the letter the investigators determined had been forged by Brendel's killer. So at that point, we're going to end the first part of this two-parter. And next week, we'll carry on. Being our first two-parter, we're not 100% sure on the formatting of this, but we'll manage. And at least this time, our podcast host wasn't DDoS attacked by some donkey on Twitter. So please join us for next week for the conclusion on the Hightower case. Oh, and we have a Twitter now. So, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, follow us everywhere apart from real life, at Murder Me Amundo Podcast. But anyway, we'll see you then. Much love. Peace.